Welcome, welcome, welcome everyone to this episode of Tech Cars Machines. This is your host, Ali Tabibian. As always, you'll find more information about our guest, about me, and about this podcast series in the show notes. We've said it before, and it's worth repeating the following. If you bought it, a truck brought it. The trucking industry uses this catchy phrase to rightfully remind everyone of how important the trucking value chain is to the economy. Therefore, the additional costs and the potential changes to customer operating models that switching to sustainable energy sources may require are critical to everyone. I think our guest today, Atif Askar, head of strategy and M&A at Trayton, provide exceptionally clear and intuitive answers to these questions. This is the third episode where we talk to a world leader in commercial transportation. Before Trayton, we hosted Jan Kronik, who plays a role like Atif's but at Daimler Trucks. And before that, our guest was Amy Davis from world leader in commercial powertrains Cummins Engine, where Amy leads efforts in new carbon-friendly power sources. Trayton is a publicly traded holding company for a number of storied brands, most of which have decades of history, including names like Scania, MAN, VW Truck and Bus, Navistar, and Rio. VW Truck and Bus is probably the name that rings most familiar to most of our listeners. VW stands for Volkswagen, which in fact is the largest shareholder by far in Trayton. But the companies are distinct. VW Truck and Bus, for example, sells commercial vehicles customized for markets such as Latin America and Africa. Navistar, a large U.S. truck manufacturer, was acquired by Trayton last year for $3.7 billion. Overall, Trayton's range of offerings includes municipal, intercity, and travel buses, school buses, vans, heavy-duty trucks, and even construction vehicles. Rio is their global brand for digital services. Overall, the company has about 25 billion euro of enterprise value, 35 billion of annual revenues, roughly 100,000 employees in 16 countries on almost every continent, and Trayton doesn't just have a presence in its areas of operation. Rather, it is a major player in each area with tailored vehicles. It sold a record 272,000 vehicles in 2021. Our conversation with Atif occurs after our podcast with Daimler, an episode Atif had listened to shortly before our taping. Daimler views hydrogen fuels as much more important to heavy-duty trucking than Trayton, a subject of significant public discussion. And some of Atif's commentary at the beginning of this episode is speaking to this difference of opinion. A couple more things. BEV stands for BEV, or Battery Electric Vehicle, and in trucking, 120 kilometers of annual operation is shorthand for 120,000 kilometers traveled per year. Without further ado, let's get to it. Tech, cars, machines. Subscribe here or at gtkpartners.com. Thank you, everyone, for joining us on this episode of Tech, Cars, Machines. Today, we have a guest who runs uh, strategy and M&A for another one of the very largest OEMs in the commercial trucking world, and that's uh, Atif Askar. And I'm hoping I actually pronounced that name correctly. And in the because I'm not quite sure, what I'll do is probably end the introduction right there and turn it over to you, Atif. Thank you for thank you so much for spending time with us. Ali, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. And you pronounced the name perfectly well, I must say. Okay. Okay. I'm glad to I'm glad to hear that. Atif, uh, where are you joining us from uh, today? I'm joining you from wonderful Berlin, a nice autumn evening, and be flying to Munich tomorrow. So from Berlin today. Oh, exactly. Tell me, so that's where you're located. Is that uh, where's uh, Trayton headquartered? The headquarter of the group, Trayton, is in Munich. We have though the technical office in uh, Sweden, in Sudatelia. This is also where one of our brands, Scania, is. And then we have uh, additional locations in Lyle, close to Chicago. That's Navistas headquarter. And then in Sao Paulo, in Brazil, from VW trucks and buses. Excellent, excellent. And it seems like you're working from home. Is that uh, still the case at uh, Trayton? It goes back and forth, depending on the week. So we're back to office partly and partly working working from home. Okay, okay. That sounds that sounds great. Well, once again, thank you for joining us. Maybe, uh, so I think the way to start is to really, for you to give our listeners a sense of uh, Trayton, the company, your end markets, your applications, the geographies, what kind of mm-hmm. vehicles you offer to match mm-hmm. those applications. And then also a little bit about yourself. What would you prefer to start with? A little bit more about your background, or should we start with Trayton uh, first? 
Yeah, I'll be short with my background. If you like, we go deeper into, into Trayton afterwards. I'm responsible for strategy and M&A at uh, Trayton. Been with the company for uh, eight years now. Had a different name before, but uh, the whole building of this group and uh, purchasing of Navistar and also the IPO basically happened in the, in the last five, six years. Uh, so before there was no Trayton. Probably for some of your listeners, Trayton does not sound familiar. Our brands in the US, it's International and IC Bus. And in Europe and in Brazil, it's uh, then Scania, MIN, VW Trucks and Buses, Neoplan are probably more familiar. Actually, if you look at our footprint, we're basically, I think, in almost every country on the world, at least with one brand, uh, sometimes with two or three or even four. Uh, home turf uh, being for Scania and MIN, certainly Europe, for Scania and VW Caminos Omnibus, Brazil, and then for Navista, North American segment, but uh, again, present uh, globally uh, in total. When it comes to which segments we're present in, also we're, you know, have a portfolio of across the range. So light duty, medium duty, and heavy duty trucks in Europe and for Scania and MN, actually the heavy duty trucks above 60 tons are the ones where we have uh, the, the biggest share, uh, but especially with Navistar and in Brazil, we also have uh, medium and light duty prisons. And then it's also present across the whole portfolio of applications. As you know, truck industry is always very, very fragmented when it comes to applications. There's no D truck. So you can get everything from haulage trucks, distribution, tanks, so tankers, uh, you name it, firefighters, uh, construction vehicles. Um, and that's basically also the clear competence of a of a truck manufacturer. You have not one model, but you have a modular toolbox with which you you build together different types of, of trucks since volumes are typically much smaller than passenger cars. And in the U.S., does Navistar have its own? Uh, th- those are the Navistar brands you mentioned in the beginning? Or does exactly. is there a Navistar truck running around here as well? No, Navistar is actually the name of the company, the right. legal name. And then the brands is, is international, coming from International Harvester uh, mm-hmm. a long time ago. And the school buses are, are branded IC bus. Excellent. Great. Mm-hmm. Great. Thank you. And um, Atif, is there one brand or another that tends to do most of the research and, and advanced engineering for, for the whole group, or is the uh, engineering distributed? Well, we have engineering uh, in, in all of our brands. You know, you need to bear in mind these brands uh, not long ago were independent. So every brand was a full line also when it comes to Mm-hmm. to R&D, but more and more we tend to cooperate in, in certain areas and, and, and are trying to use and move to a common modular toolbox so that you do not develop two engine platforms or two battery propulsion systems, two e-axles. So I think that's the journey that the whole group is on to move towards uh, a more integrated or cooperating R&D. Yeah, but we do have engineers in all our locations. Uh, I think in total, it's around 40,000 engineers that we have mm-hmm. in Södertälje, in, in Munich, and uh, in Nuremberg, in Lyle, and in Brazil. Right. I didn't ask the question that well. I should have said research and development. It sounds like R&D is being a little bit more centralized to prevent duplication. And then application engineering basically clearly has to be distributed amongst the geographies and brands. Yeah, especially if it comes to them really doing the vehicle integration. Whereas if you think about like the development of a new energy engine generation uh, that mm-hmm. you can do centrally, so that's engineering. But you know we're in the process of in, in introducing our new 30 liter platform, and that has been developed by a more central team, so to say, and then being rolled out, and uh, the application integration is then done locally. Excellent, great, great. Thank you very much. So mm-hmm. Atif, I know. A lot of your work recently has been about sustainability and what is the path that the group is undertaking to basically meet its own objectives and, and really comply with societal requirements and regu- regulations. Tell us a little bit about how much of what you're doing is because you have to, uh, how much of it is because of meaning from regulatory pressure, how much of it is because it's becoming increasingly clear to everyone that the planet is on a path that's good for no one, and it's driven by internal motivations. Where's the push coming from? Yeah, yeah, Ali, I think mandates cannot and, and, and should 
should not be uh, enough, right? And in fact, if you look at one of our brands, Scania, it was one of the first companies that adopted science-based targets and, and formulated driving the shift to sustainable transport solution as, as their purpose much earlier than when the whole ESG topic came up and came more into focus. And actually in our strategy, sustainability like value creation is one of the key pillars. Interestingly, it's not so much contradicting. I mean, if you look at the science-based targets and at the same time compare it with when is which technology like BEF trucks from TCO perspective better for our clients, what we would call market-based targets, these two curves are not so much away from each other. So in the end, sustainability is also a way to be in front of the world. I think it is a, a valuable target in itself and it doesn't contradict with market and pure commercial targets. That's very interesting. Atif. In the United States, I noticed about 10 years ago that regardless mm -hmm. of the what the politicians were saying, the first group of people that realized, listen, the drive to sustainability is going to happen and we just need to start on that path were the uh, electric utility companies. That's why in this country, whether you look at California, which tends to be, as we say here, use the word progressive in terms of sustainability or Texas, which tends to be on the opposite side of the political spectrum, we're probably mm -hmm. the, the, the country's largest and one of the world's largest producer of solar power. And Texas is one of the world's largest producers of wind power. And so the utilities themselves have, have for a long time really been ahead of mandates. And it seems like what you're, what you're saying is that the commercial vehicle people essentially are on a path that they're not really going to deviate from almost regardless of what the mandates do. Yeah, definitely. You know, like transport and trucks today are connected with uh, CO2 and, and with a, a significant CO2 footprint. And if you look at what it takes for that not to be the case in 10, 15 years from now, it's not rocket science. We, we can do it. And we'll, I guess we'll come to it. So I think uh, being on the forefront of this and, and, and pushing the, the limits, what, what you can do with electric vehicles and being a driver for, for it is an is a aim uh, and a goal in, in itself. And at the same time, it will it makes complete economic sense to do this uh, mm -hmm. as well. So it's not even contradicting. Exactly. And I know, and we'll get to this uh, a little bit more, Trayton is basically a battery electric vehicle centric a strategy that you have. And don't let me put words in your mouth, but that's probably an accurate, fairly accurate, if course, description of what you're up to. What's always interesting to me, Atif, is even in, the, in educated circles, by that I mean educated in, in, the, in the ways of sustainability and, and CO2 reduction, I find that many executives outside the commercial vehicle industry, many investors, venture capitalists, et cetera, the model that they use for electrification, at least in their own mind, is essentially the same way they would think about consumer vehicle electrification. And they really uh, think about it the same way, which is really surprising how often you have to restart the discussion from a very basic perspective. And I know one of the wonderful ways you try to do that is essentially start by making the point that, you know, commercial vehicles are capital equipment and therefore their utilization rates and the total cost of ownership, how you calculate it, is very different from a typical consumer vehicle, uh, which really only operates, even in the United States, between an hour and an hour and a half a, a day on average. Take us a little bit through that that really very instructive uh, way that, I, that I've seen you typically start the, the education. I think, Ali, you're, you're spot on. It starts with understanding that a truck is more a machine uh, than a car. This truck has an owner and the owner makes a living with it or it belongs to a company and, mm -hmm. and the company needs to make profits. I mean, logistics, the revenue, sorry, this is quite fixed. No one's going to tell, give you more money because you brought your Amazon package with, with brand A, B or right. C, right? right? So the part you need to play with is the cost part of the total cost of ownership. Uh, well, there's a reliability element to it, but, but basically and mostly it's total cost of ownership. And if you look at today's total cost of ownership of a typical long-haul client, around 40% of the cost of this customer will be fuel cost. So it will be the diesel. Now, this is with that the one element where you have the biggest lever. So you need to look for a solution that most efficiently delivers a kilometer of transport. And this is Beth. It has not been the case 10, 12 years ago. If you look back 10, 12 years ago, cost of a kilowatt hour of battery was around 1,000 euros. And people were expecting it to come down, but they were not expecting it to come down as fast as it did the last 10 years. So today we are around 100 euros per 
kilowatt hours. And that's the range where the battery cost actually is not decisive anymore. In our models, we even assume a stagnating cost for it, uh, not seeing it to further come down because it reached the level where the really decisive factors are the cost for energy versus the cost for diesel versus the cost for, for hydrogen. Mm-hmm. And, and that equation always works out in favor of, of the best truck because the best truck needs just one third of the energy that a, that a typical fuel cell truck would need. And that has nothing to do with the fuel cells not being efficient enough or not being developed enough. The whole process of making hydrogen out of energy and, and turning it back to energy is, is simply not the efficient process. So this is something you will not be able to compensate. So this one to three uh, ratio in efficiency will stay. And that makes it very difficult for fuel trucks to be cost efficient with the best truck. And that is especially on the long run. Now, there's one aspect to it that, of course, has, has one limitation. You need to be able to charge this truck. In, in Europe, it's uh, every four and a half hours that you need to, de- to take a 45-minute uh, mandatory break. In the U.S., you can drive for six hours. But you need to be able in that break to charge the truck for the next leg of your transport. And for a long, long time, we were not able to answer this question, who's going to build this charging networking? But since one year ago, uh, we have an answer. In, in Europe, the three big truck OEMs, which is the Volvo, Daimler, and, and Trayton, joined the forces. And together, that's 75% of the market and founded a joint venture, Commercial Vehicle Charging Europe. And they have half a billion euros to build out the first 1,700 charge points. That, I think, initiated a lot in the industry, that people are understanding that that BEF trucks on the long haul are, are really coming. And uh, I think uh, that's what we'll see. Again, we're not saying hydrogen w- will never happen. We just think it's a small, small niche where we'll really have an application in the truck industry where hydrogen is is really more advantage uh, than the best truck. And again, completely believing at the same time in hydrogen for, for example, steel industry, for fertilizers, chemical industry. Chemicals. So, that's right. Yes. And that's a little bit our position. When we started this journey, Ali, that was seven, eight years ago, to be honest, you would get more a good laugh from managers in our industry about electric heavy-duty trucks than a good discussion because mm-hmm. the, the parameters were simply not there. But if you do the math uh, right now, it's, it's quite, quite clear, quite obvious. And then we can talk about you know, things like the energy grid, et cetera. But we have looked at that as well. And, and everything confirms for us even more that the mainstream application for long-haul vehicles uh, will be better vehicles. That's pretty interesting. Uh, Atef, let me get it a little bit more into the details of some of the, uh, some of the things you said. And let's go back to the, sort of the total cost of ownership calculation that you made. Mm-hmm. So there's the circle of cost, the, the pie chart of cost, if you will, and the cost of acquiring the vehicle is there. And about 40, a little over 40% of that pie is really the cost of uh, operating that vehicle, the, the fuel cost of operating that mm-hmm. vehicle. Um, you're even separating out the cost of maintenance and, and uh, things of that nature. Just the fuel is about 40% of the cost of operating that vehicle. And I recall that pie, that calculation was done for a large truck, was it not? I think it was about $130,000, $100,000 plus vehicle purchase cost. What, what class of vehicle was that calculation for? Yeah, that calculation actually is a, is a long-haul vehicle that goes 120, 130 kilometers a year. And yes, 20, 40%. Right. Exactly. And right. I'm talking about the European and the US, everything is a little bit Longer distances uh, and a classical long haul or line haul would be even 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 driving uh, longer. So that would be a typical European long haul truck. Forty percent would be fuel, as you said, and then you have one third of the cost is the cost for the driver. Around ten percent is the cost for the vehicle over the lifetime. We're talking about uh, an ICE vehicle, and then you have another ten percent and ten percent for things like repair and maintenance, overhead costs of of such a such a company. Okay. And then if you looked at a, a smaller vehicle, let's say class six mm-hmm. vehicle, uh, those mm-hmm. typically, you know, at least here in the States, we refer to them as class eight, uh, class eight vehicles, the big uh, tractor trailers, class six vehicle. How would that pie chart change? Uh, do you know mm-hmm. offhand what the, what the map would look like? Would it get better or, or worse? 
It really depends on the use case, right? So it depends on what kind of operation do you do. Now, just looking at the Class A truck, for example, there can be long-haul trucks that can run 130,000 kilometers, but there could also be, you know, a construction vehicle or a concrete pump, and that is then only 10, 20 kilometers, 20,000 kilometers a year. So it really depends on the use case. Now, typically, what you would see in a Class 6 truck is that the energy costs are lower, right? So the cost for energy over the life cycle is lower in relation to the cost of the vehicle. If you electrify that vehicle, you would also need less batteries. So also the the, the cost increase is smaller. I, I have the feeling if you look at, you know, for example, city buses or smaller mm-hmm. vehicles or passenger cars, there's quite a consensus that this will be bad vehicles. I think the big discussion that is ongoing is, is about the long-haul trucks, where a lot of times the argument for fuel cells is they can do a longer distance, right? And that is correct, right? Let's, let's do the analogy. Let's take a bath truck that we want to run like a diesel truck. A diesel truck can have, you know, it can have a 1,000-liter trunk tank. So with 1,000 liters, you can go 3,000 kilometers. And if you want to have the equivalent for this uh, as a BEV truck, you would need, yeah, around about 25 tons of battery. But the question is, why would you do this? Why would you have this battery? If you have the possibility to charge, you would not do this. You would just have as much battery as you need to come to the first charge point. I always compare this, uh, Ali, with the, with the airline, right? If, if a pilot stops in Berlin and he wants to fly to Munich and he's asked how much should we fill the plane, he would not say just fill it up. He would, he would say that's the distance we need to go. Give me 10, 15% more. And he will not take much more load. Otherwise, on the end of the year, he will see this 1% higher cost or 2% because he was carrying around fuel. And it's a little bit comparable, if you like, this range anxiety you cannot afford if you're doing a business with a truck. You really need to optimize the whole process, and that would require that you take a battery that really is dimensioned in a way that you only have as much as you need on, on your truck. And that is technically between your start and the first charging point, and then for the second leg. And the funny thing is, Ali, a lot of our time, the waste majority also of, of, of heavy-duty trucks, they don't even go more than 500 kilometers a day. So for, for that use case, you would not even need to have the, the public charging in between. And I think that's that's the difference of, of perspectives uh, that you can have. But we really believe that the one companies and the one customers that understand first and manage this process to, to manage the charging of a BEV truck can, on, on, on that road, on that relation, can offer transport much cheaper than others. And then they will sooner or later, you know, dominate the market because their, their costs will be much lower. That's really interesting, Atif, because people look at, let's say, the Amazon delivery trucks or some of the local or, or school buses, et cetera, that are costs aside, uh, at least um, from an operating perspective, easier to electrify. Basically, the argument is they're not going that the the route is not that long, and there's a program mm-hmm. stop at a charging uh, location every night. They go back mm-hmm. to the depot, and I guess what you're saying is even for long haul, it's not that different because there is a program stop due to driver fatigue or requirements okay. to to prevent driver fatigue, and so the only issue is can you map that program stop into where there is a charging point. And in that sense, you fundamentally have the same uh, the same circumstance that you do when you when you run a municipal route, which are really quite effectively on the road to elect- electrification. If you look at the Amazon changes to its electric feed, the U.S. Postal Service, etc., that's essentially what you're saying. Exactly, you need to have the public infrastructure, and you need to have predictability it makes it easier, right? These big expansive batteries they want to be utilized, and and this is why we believe in BEF and long haul. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The more you use them the lower your cost will be. This is where they have the advantage. They're more expensive in buying them, but less expensive the more you use them. You know, you could bring this example. The the, the worst use case for battery would be Bill Gates. Yeah, okay? It's in the harbor the whole year. And then once or twice a year, Bill Gates decides to go on the yacht. And then he wants to go a very, very long distance with it, right? Never. Battery will never work. <laughs> but fortunately, our industry is exactly the opposite. 
in the whole that you want to utilize the vehicle. A lot of relations are predictable. Still, there is some way to go. You need to build the infrastructure in your depot and public infrastructure. The only thing I'm saying is we don't think that is that impossible or that difficult. So it will take time, but it's quite predictable. And once this is built up, it's very, very difficult for any other technology to beat the, the TCO of a battery truck. And that's what counts in the end. Interesting. Let me take that a, a little further. Why? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's fairly common for a, a U.S. A Class A truck. And I think some areas in China and Brazil, you would know much better than I have, have similar routes that they run. It's not unusual for them to have a 300-gallon, roughly 1,000-liter tank, as you, as you described. But my understanding was that with two drivers, that truck can basically stay on the road for 11 hours a day, uh, 22 hours a day. Each driver can do 11 hours. They need a one-hour break. How is that consistent with the four-and-a-half-hour, the, the math that you are typically doing, which is four-and-a-half hours of operation and a 45-minute uh, minute break? Take us through that comparison, please. Yeah, of course. I mean, the most important point here is, Ali, in, in Europe and also in, in the U.S., there are not that many trucks that go with two drivers. Given the driver shortage that we have and everything, actually driver is discussed resource, right? Mm-hmm. You could now, now think about China, but then depending on the business case, it still would make sense to stop and have this 45 minutes extra to charge, even if your driver needs to wait. If the difference in, in, in the TCO is big enough, you can go a step further, if you like, Ali, right? Autonomous trucks. Autonomous trucks that run 24 hours. Now we can discuss when exactly they will come or not. Actually, you could think an autonomous truck, but then needs to have hydrogen, right? Because it needs to go this very, very long distances and can run 24 hours a day. Right. Actually, the autonomous trucks is the best use case you can have for a vest. Why? Because it's going even more kilometers. This truck is running all the time. So the operational costs are really, really elemental. On the other side, what's the cost of an autonomous truck's Having an additional stop a day or two additional stops as compared to the fuel cell truck, the cost is almost nothing because there is no driver cost. Basically, it's the depreciation of the vehicle in that 45 minutes or mm-hmm. calculating over a year, I don't know, one-tenth. And even there, you could argue depreciation is less because you're not using it. So the more you, you use the vehicle, it, the better it becomes. And again, there are a couple of use cases where you have the benefit of the fuel cell truck. But I think it is important to take the right decisions when we are on a level of of Europe or the US, which infrastructure we want to invest in in the next three, four, five years, or which recommendations we can give to our customers because they will not afford to have all types of trucks and have an hydrogen truck and a grid connection in their depot. So the better we can explain them and understand for them, what's the most likely outcome? What's probably the best technology for you, uh, the better. Yeah. That's very interesting. And thank you for describing it the way you are, because it helps make it really intuitive. For example, even in today's world, that trucker, there is a certain fuel savings per liter or per gallon that would mm-hmm. make him or her leave the highway, go 10 minutes away, fuel there and come back in 10 minutes to the highway. There's some math that would make yeah. that rational. And what you're basically saying is that math is strong enough for electric propulsion that going, quote unquote, out of your way by 45 minutes, meaning taking a 45 minute stop by the highway that you weren't expecting to or wouldn't otherwise need to with diesel, that mm-hmm. that math works is is essentially what you're arguing, exactly. um, which you is have, okay. Yeah. And you, have, and you have, by the way, the this going out of the route, you have this in Europe as well. I think it's 80% of the drivers that go up to five minutes off the highway to mm-hmm. to uh, get the cheaper or the better location at at, uh, uh, at a place uh, to charge off the highway. Yeah, yeah. And again, the, it's, it's not the question, and that's always difficult if you look at trucks. Look, we have in Europe 4% of our trucks are gas engines. We do gas engines. Two or 3% of our trucks have four axles. We do trucks with four axles. For us as an OEM, Ali, it's not even that difficult to build a fuel cell versus a BEV truck because 
the fuel cell truck has everything a BEV truck has as well, right? It has mm-hmm. an e-accelerator, it's a battery management system, power electronics. It has a battery, which is, by the way, not small because you want to operate the fuel cell in the optimal pace. The only thing you do is you take out a couple of batteries, then you put on a fuel cell. And there are companies like uh, Cummins, Bollard, Bosch, PowerCell, GM, a couple of companies that offer this and the tanks. And off you go. I mean, this kind of Lego toolbox is, is what we're doing all the time with the trucks. For us, it's much easier to have a fuel cell truck uh, and, and a BEV truck coming out of the same line. I think the more challenging question is then for our customers. Do they need the stronger uh, grid connection? And then for economies, uh, for, for countries, for governments, what should they invest in? Should they invest in uh, a hydrogen gas pipeline or should they invest in infrastructure, so in mm-hmm. charging infrastructure? There is, I think, where you have the important decisions. That's very, very interesting. I appreciate you really putting some detail into it. Let's look at it from the customer's perspective, and we'll come back to the charging infrastructure, which is very valuable part of the discussion here. What's actually interesting is these the, your customers are typically low margin operators, three, four percent margins is, is is how they operate. And most of the time, people would say, well, that's not an environment where you want to introduce a lot of change into. They just don't have the, the budgets really. But let me ask you about the level of expertise that's inside your customer that would allow them to absorb all of this. What do you think the constraints are for the customers to be able to adopt these solutions? And to what extent is it their responsibility, the government's responsibility, or something that you want to add to your offerings to make that transition smoother for everyone? Yeah, and I think here, Ali, all the stakeholders need to need to play a role. I mean, for, for the customer, of course, it's it's a challenge. They need to understand how to charge a vehicle, how to allow for charging on their premises, how to find and understand how they can charge on the highway. So so they will need to start working with this topic. And as you said, if you if you look at it, there is money to gain because the best transport is overall cheaper. So the cake, the cost cake is smaller, and you can share the benefit between the customer and, and the OEMs and, and other players. And by the way, the financing of, of vehicles is typical task that the OEM has. So we are prepared. That's probably the first thing to finance the vehicle for the customer. As you said, there is a collateral and uh, we need to think about residual values then of best vehicles because we do not have a whole lot of years of experience uh, Mm -hmm. for that, Mm -hmm. but it's absolutely doable. Then we are spending a lot of effort, uh, Ali, into being able to offer consulting on the other one hand and then uh, solutions, complete solutions in cooperation with partners on the other hand, so that in every region we we can offer someone that the uh, the customer can work with to get the charging, depot charging, for example. And then finally, I think also the governments play an important role here, especially in the first wave. I think these kind of companies that, that start this journey first, that they should get subsidies for it. They should get incentives to do it, be it, you know, some tax or or mount benefits or or certain certain subsidies for buying the vehicle. There's by the way a lot more we need to have help with when it comes to the infrastructure for charging. I think we can also get much faster. Just if you think about the time it takes to get a grid connection or to allow certain utilities a preemptive build out of infrastructure, charging infrastructure. Right, we're currently doing it for passenger cars and. In Europe or in some countries, you cannot preemptively build this out also for trucks. So we should have rules that since this is a no regret move, we have both on the radar already. But I think it will require all the stakeholders to work together much closely. Also, we with, for example, uh, utility providers over the charging joint venture to make it fun. So Atif, for the 45-minute charging math to work with the uh, with the type of vehicles that that you're describing, the ones that really need to go only about four and a half, five hours, which should cover essentially most people's needs. What does that charger need to look like and how far is it from what's currently available? Mm -hmm. If you look at today's charges, I mean, if you take the one you have uh, at home, it would be typically 11 or 22 kilowatts. Then if you look at charges that you have on the road, can go up to 100, 150 uh, kilowatt hours. The same standards called CCS allows to for a charging up until 350 kilowatts. So 
we're talking about MCS. That's twice as much as the highest standards can provide today. Uh, the MCS standard that will be introduced, by the way, goes from 750 up to around three megawatts. How different is it? You need to cool the cord of this charger. You need to do this with uh, CCS 350 kilowatt as well. What is new is you also need to cool the plug on the vehicle side and also on the on the charger side. You could have uh, seen some initial prototypes on on the IAA. So it is a step change in technology, but also nothing that you know is 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 specifically difficult to, to build. So it's it's more how exactly do you do this? What kind of design do you have? How do you do uh, the specific connection? But the standard is there, so. And assuming there's somewhere uh, the production facility on the grid that's producing the uh, the electricity, does the grid itself need to change between sort of the transmission line and the point of delivery of this uh, electricity? Or is that wiring, if you will, and that underground and overhead infrastructure already capable of handling all of this? You have typically connection to the normal grid. And depending on how many of these MCS standards you have, you will have a connection to the mid-voltage or to the high-voltage grid that is out there. So it will rather change where you connect. Now, if you connect to high voltage, you need to have the transformator yourself to then distribute it to the different dispensers. But no, it's just been a question of how many charges you have. And and that defines what kind of connection do you need. Excellent. All right. Doesn't seem like it's that, like you said, uh, doesn't seem that it's not science fiction. This is, these are things we can do today. No, it's doable, you know. And so certainly in the in the field of infrastructure, which is really probably the most critical part uh, of all of mm-hmm. this, I think it, you and I were talking before and we sort of uh, had a little bit of a laugh saying, you know, everybody focuses on, can you make a BEV? Can you make a hydrogen fuel cell vehicle, et cetera? The vehicle's the, the least complicated part of the problem in some, in some ways, right? It's the infrastructure and then the after sales uh, sort of support post-retirement services that probably the customers are most worried about. And you didn't really wait for somebody else to come up with the infrastructure solution. You got together with uh, with Volvo and Daimler and formed uh, probably the most interesting industry consortium that I know of uh, to bring sustainability infrastructure to to customers. Tell us uh, tell us about that, Atif. Yeah, and you know it was the aim for this, Ali, was really to to accelerate this whole development. We have this chicken and egg problem, right? No one will buy electric trucks if he thinks he cannot charge them, and no one will build up charges if there are no electric trucks. So we cannot sit there and complain or do something. So this is why the OEMs decided to take a significant amount of money, which is half a billion euro, and say, okay, let's build something which is in front of the wave and which starts to build this out. You know, the number of points that we will build out, it will not be sufficient, but but that's not the point. I think the point is accelerating the beginning of this S-curve into electrification and show clearly and set a signal that we are committed to this, that we are not only doing this because we are, we are pushed to, we, we really want to drive the shift. And in 10, 15 years, we want to be in a situation where most of the trucks are electric. So we built a joint venture, one third owned by each of the three big OEMs, but acting quite independently with a lot of knowledge. The CEO of the company, Anja von Niersen, has a long, long experience in doing charging for for passenger cars. So a lot of the things she hears, like, will this ever work? It sounds very familiar to her. And and we are very positive and very, very excited that, that this is happening and that we're the first ones doing it and not coming after, you know, other startups or whoever have started this, but that, that we are pushing the, the, the change there as, as the big OEMs. And I think it's a strong sign if the three big OEMs do this with 75% of market share on the continent. And you've provided a vehicle essentially for governments to contribute to in whatever way makes sense for the government, right? It's much harder to go to a government and say, let's sit down and plan something. But if you have yeah. a template which you're following, it's much easier for the government to say, you know what, wherever I have excess land under my bridges, uh, alongside railroad tracks, et cetera, you can have it as long as you, and just deploy your template. It becomes much simpler when that happens. Let me ask you this about the, the joint, what, what is the name of the joint venture, uh, by the way? The name of the joint venture is uh, Commercial Vehicle Charging Europe. 
Oh, yeah, but right. the, the the brand name of the locations will be different. It will soon be uh, made public. We haven't public uh, okay. it yet. But uh, you don't want to break news on this podcast. You don't want. No, to... <laughs> leave this to to our our friends from the joint venture. But uh, they will they will come. They will announce the the cool name. The company itself is is located in Amsterdam, in uh, where you know there's also a lot of talent uh, coming there, and they're running strong. I mean, the management team we met a few weeks ago is really, really excited to, to make this fun. And they are doing everything. Essentially, they're procuring land, they're procuring uh, electric power, they're setting up the charging stations. That's that it's it's soup to nuts, or is it more about or about converging, converting mm-hmm. existing uh fuel stations, petrol fuel stations to to electrification? What is what is the how much from scratch is this <laughs> uh, is this work? Yeah. The joint venture is basically a charge point operator. So they will need to get the hardware, which is all already pioneering work. Uh, since, uh, as you probably know, the MCS standard allowing for the 750 kilowatt you, you need to charge mm-hmm. a big battery in 45 minutes is just being introduced and being certified. So they, they, they buy the hardware, they develop the uh, charge point operator software, and then they need to get a hold of real estate with the respective grid connections and, and, and will build out the locations and typically if you look at also other players in the passenger world in this area it's a mix ali it can be greenfield it can be brownfield in certain countries you 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 partner up with certain parties because they have access to locations that are interesting so it it, it will be a mix and it is different from country to country in in, in europe right and uh, us probably a little bit more homogeneous but there might be different interesting partners to talk to in order to get locations. And in some countries, it makes more sense to build it from, from scratch and, and, and buy the land and do it on your own. Well, so this is really much essentially a well-capitalized startup. It's really going to be uh, develop its own business plan. There's no particular built-in set of relationships or set of objectives or, or ways to do things that uh, that was prescribed to the joint ventures. That's really quite something. Now, this works out to around 300,000 euro per station. That sounds low, doesn't it? It seems like uh, did I do the math correctly? Is it three hundred thousand euro per station? It's not per station, but per charge point. So if we say one thousand seven hundred charge points, this is basically a dispenser uh, or, or oh, a charge. Oh, I see. Point, right. I see. Yeah. So I it's see. not the station with five or ten charge points. So it's one thousand seven hundred charges, if you like, uh, MCS charges. So or or CCS in the early years, because um, you know, as you know, there are much less trucks on the way than passenger cars. So you will not have huge stations in the beginning with with a whole lot of of charges, but it's important. It's one thousand seven hundred charge points, not stations. Otherwise, the math wouldn't work. Do you think that's enough to give at least on the most significant routes give customers confidence that they can buy an electric vehicle and there will be plenty of common routes that will have the appropriate uh, charging infrastructure? Yeah, I think for the next three, four years, we have a good nucleus, so to say. But for Europe in total, it's by, by far not enough. We will need much more locations. I mean, there are some estimations from the SAA, for example, in Europe. So the the association of the of the truck companies. So I think with that, we'll get something around 5% of what we will need long term if you, if you look 15, mm-hmm. 20 years. But if you look at it, Ali, even if we now start selling electric trucks, it takes quite a while until the rolling fleet has a significant amount of electric trucks, right? So this is why in the beginning, it's really addressing the, the key roads to start extending that technology. And as it increases the share of best vehicles in the rolling fleet, of course, you need to build this out. But also there, I have the feeling, you know, once you prove that this is running, getting access to capital or scaling, this will not be the a challenge yeah it just needed to it, it took someone to get this starting because it's really the first heavy duty fast charging joint venture uh, in the world that we we set up so far given the the ramp that this is going to take you know it's going to take time to convert the fleet how mm-hmm. much should companies like Trayton and the world be spending aggressively to make current diesel engines more efficient uh, mm-hmm. it seems like you know, we, we could wait for all of this stuff to happen, but in the interim, there's a lot of good to be done with more efficient uh, uh, diesel engines. Tell us about that and how Trayton thinks about that. Yeah, 
look, we very much believe in electrification and we, we announced this target to have 50% of our new vehicles in 2030 bringing BEF. But until 2030, we'll still sell a lot of combustion engines. So the engines we sell should be as efficient as possible. And this is why we probably developed the last generation of our certain liter platform of engines, which is the key engine in, in mm-hmm. our industry. And we just rolled it out for Navistar in the US. And we see a fuel efficiency increase with, with a couple of other changes on aerodynamics of 15%. And that's that's huge. So while we're shooting to change to bath, at the same time, we should make use of any technological developments that we have to make the current combustion engine that will be around for some time, even if we aggressively push, as efficient as possible. And that's happening with our current common base engine that we're rolling out. And how often do these common base engines get the platforms get upgraded? Is it every seven or eight years, 10 years, like the... Yeah, it depends whether you have some kind of performance step or whether you're really doing a complete new uh, engine, so to say. Mm -hmm. I mean, this one was really completely newly thought through and that you would do probably every, every, rather every 20 years. And and every five years, you probably do a performance step for an engine. And typically, you know, you spend a lot of money to get two, three percent more fuel efficiency compared to the same engine in in the same region. That gives you also a feeling, Ali, how sensitive our customers are regarding TCO, why the TCO calculation right. of a truck is, is so important. And you mentioned that 3 to 4%, right, uh, that a typical trucker has as, as EBIT. You could say in some places it's even 2 to 3%. So this guy is working or girl until the 14th of December to pay back costs in the last two weeks, then you're you're really making your profit. So <laughs> they will be very, very much calculating the benefits of, of, of a Beth vehicle. So this is why this concept is so important in our industry. So basically, this common base engine was such a big revision, if you will, that this is mm-hmm. essentially it. You're going to make incremental improvements. And really, after this, it's all yep. battery electric. That's quite, yep. uh, quite amazing. That so, was you know, probably the last engine platform that that, that we have uh, developed. Sorry. Wow, what an amazing 120 year, well, I guess it'll total about 120 <laughs> years of diesel engine and then and then we're on <laughs> to the next thing. It's, 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 uh, it's sobering to think about it that way. I don't want to overuse your generosity here. Let me open it up to point to a couple things that might be interesting to talk about, but we can talk about anything else in the last few minutes. One is you talked about what governments, what we clearly talked about what the industry is doing to help itself and what government might do to help with charging infrastructure. Are there interesting things you'd like startups to contribute to your journey? And what are your predictions, hopes, and concerns as for all of our sakes? You know, you know we hope your, your journey is successful. <laughs> yeah. and I mean that literally. I mean, I, we live in California here between, you know, monsoons and fires. You know, we got plenty to hope for. Uh, a good reason to hope for your success. <laughs> yeah, 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 fully agree, Ali. Look, when it comes to startups, I think they they can contribute a lot, right? We're we're in the beginning of electrification. I think we will see the next S curve of performance steps for batteries, for example, when we have you know a solution to industrialized solid state batteries or to come up with the next fancy cell cell chemistry and i think there's a lot of r&d to be done to make these batteries more efficient we can do a lot with software also when it comes to the vehicle it's such like uh, making e-routing possible by interconnecting the data from the tms and the state of the vehicle and calculating what's the best way to operate is I think there are so many areas that electrification touches that there is ample space for t- startups to be innovative and, and and contribute to that and and i see that will be necessary and i'm convinced that we will see jumps in the efficiency of battery every calculation we did so far in our models is really with lithium ion batteries current technology evolutionary getting better and not not like a jump to a solid state battery that that's a game changer in itself predictions hopes going forward you or know, concerns <laughs> or concerns you know that's funny ali i think we're in the middle of a disruption, but it's one of the most, how you say, predictable disruptions you can have. So I think our children will get back to us and say, 
you, you could have done the math. What was too complicated? I mean, didn't you look at the DCO and the cost of the batteries? So it's not, you know, Apple coming around with a new iPhone and everyone is surprised that things are changing. It's a very, very predictable disruption. And today, our products are contributing significantly to CO2 in the world. And I think we need to act. And importantly, we need to act quickly. Let's not talk about whether the engines are stopped in 2040 or 2045 or 35. Let's rather talk what can we do here and now, building up charging infrastructure, getting the best running, because this is the fastest and most efficient way to decarbonize transportation, right? And, you know, if I need to uh, close with any words, it would be just bearing in mind that if you have 10,000 vehicles that are working with, with um, combustion engines today, taken off the road one year earlier, that's 1 million tons of CO2 reduced every year. So, and that's what we should be striving for, doing it, doing it quickly with the most efficient and, and fastest available uh, technology. And I said, I think that's not even rocket science. We just need to get, get started and, and, and do it. And that's what's, what's happening in the industry. Well, that's encouraging to hear, and we'll just make sure that there's enough uh, people producing electricity for you to be able to pull this all off. By the way, if I may, also an interesting thing, it's not that much green energy that is required on top. We need the, the math for Germany, for example. I mean, just assuming 50% of the rolling fleet in Germany is electric. You can do the math. It's then 150,000 vehicles. You calculate with, I don't know, 120, 130 kilometers per year per vehicle and with the efficiency that you typically have 1.1 1.2 kilowatt hours per kilometer you come up with 20 terawatt hours per year and that number sounds huge but we produce around 450 500 terawatts hour of energy in, in germany every year and it's comparable on the european level so it's three to four percent more energy that we need to create in a over a time of of 12 years I think that's doable. Yeah. yeah, that's nice. That's nice to know. Uh, that's not, so Atif, thank you uh, so much for spending time with us. It's a wonderful a treasure trove of, uh, of information. And I mean that sincerely. <laughs> and uh, we can't uh, wait to publish it and have people really utilize, uh, utilize all these insights. And hopefully from the perspective of your audience and some of the people you want to hear your, uh, your arguments, this will be a piece of collateral that will be useful to you as well. Thank you very much, Ali, for having me. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much. Tech, cars, machines. Subscribe here or at gtkpartners.com.